Okay, so we'll start. Tinakoto, welcome to our second webinar for 2022. My name is Lucinda Thatcher and I will be facilitating this session on inflammatory bowel disease. I would like to introduce Professor Richard Geary, an IBD specialist and gastroenterologist from Christchurch. We are very privileged to have you speaking to us this evening and we look forward to enhancing our knowledge in IBD and learning many tips and tricks to help our patients with IBD. This evening is supported by the Rural Health Department of Otago University and the Rural Hospital Medicine Division of the uh, Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners. We can claim one hour of CME for tonight's session. And if you'd like me to lodge these points for you, this is possible this evening after you have completed the feedback form and documented your uh, New Zealand Medical Council number at the end of that form. I'd also like to take a moment to thank uh, Richard Klinghan for helping this evening. If you have any questions throughout the evening, please post them in the chat and we will stop after each case and ask these. All that said and done, I will now uh, hand over to Richard Geary and say, and again, just thank you very much for joining us this evening. Uh, thanks, Lucinda, and thanks uh, for inviting me to come along this evening. Um, it's always uh, a real privilege for me to talk to other doctors about what I do, but also try and work out how you do what I do um, in places where you are, which is very different to where I am. So hopefully we can um, meet somewhere in the middle and understand how we can look after our IBD patients uh, really well. Um, so tonight I'm going to do a little bit of an introduction and then there'll be a number of cases. During the cases, I'll stop and I'll throw some questions out there. And what I'd like you to do, if you can, is maybe just make some notes down about what you think the answers might be. And then we'll go through those as we go. So um, if you just sort of test yourselves on those as we go, and then there'll be more chance for questions along the way as well. So people often think that my life's a bit like this. It's about uh, looking down pink tunnels, um, which uh, enable me to get a good view of the world. This is um, a colonoscopy movie, which might play in just a moment. There we go. Uh, beautiful reticular pattern of blood vessels there. We call that the Toblerone sign. It's the transverse colon, it's a triangle. Um, and uh, that looks really healthy and, and good. And that brings a joy to my heart when I see a, a colon like that, fantastic. However, if you've got ulcerative colitis, you might have a bowel that looks like this. And you can see the white ulcers there. And then there's these islands of existing inflamed tissue. And obviously that's someone with a pretty sick colon there. And what's more, if you had Crohn's disease and you might have a colon that looks like this, where you see patchy inflammation and a stricture coming up just here as well. So you can see those sort of real diseases that look pretty bad. They can affect people in all sorts of ways. And, and that's what we're talking about tonight. But of course, IBD just isn't in your bowel. Just to remind you that a lot of people with inflammatory bowel disease have extra intestinal manifestations, and that can include erythema nodosum, uh, which you can see there on the shins, but can occur anywhere on the body. Obviously, red painful lumps that then fade to a bruise. Pyoderma gangrenosum, which uh, is rare, but we can see again on the calves, uh, on the shins, sorry. And also around the stomas, sometimes people can get pyoderma gangrenosum that can be quite challenging to manage. We can get peripheral arthritis. We can get a, a central or axial arthritis, similar to enclosing spondylitis as well. And this can go with the disease at the same time. And then we can also get bile duct lesions affecting, um, affecting the, the bile ducts, uh, leading to sclerosing cholangitis or cholangiocarcinoma. And then many of you will be aware of patients with Crohn's disease also having perianal fistulae and abscesses. And that can be really um, pretty uh, difficult for patients um, with those sorts of diseases. So obviously it's not just in the gut, it's in other places as well. So before we go any further, who gets IBD in New Zealand? Who are these people? 
I've done some pretty cool epidemiology studies here in Canterbury, and that black line is the incidence of Crohn's disease in Canterbury. We've got one of the highest incidences anywhere in the world. And we know that in other places around New Zealand, the incidence is also high, perhaps not quite as high, but certainly high. So there's a lot of new pe people being newly diagnosed with Crohn's disease all the time. I think in Canterbury, there's about 3,000 people. So it's getting up towards um, you know, all about 0 0.7, 0.8% of the population probably. If you look at the sex and age of onset, again, you can see that people are diagnosed between 15 and 45, roughly for Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. So that's the peak age of diagnosis. But of course, we have children and older people being diagnosed as well. Why do they get it? That's a whole other talk for another day. Uh, lots of reasons why there might be. Whenever there's lots of reasons, I always tell the medical students it means we don't know. Um, and I think we, we've got we've got some ideas, but we don't really fully understand why people get it. But it's essentially a dysregulated immune response uh, in a genetically susceptible individual. All right, so that's enough of me talking about uh, the background stuff. What I'm going to do now is run through these four cases, and we'll stop along the way, and we'll be able to talk through what what's going on and, and where we're going. So the first patient is a 22-year-old lawyer called Sean. He presents with some abdominal pain, increasing severity. It's probably more on the right side than the left. Uh, he's had a few loose bowel motions. Uh, he's had a bit of nausea and anorexia. And he must be sick because he's a lawyer and he's had two weeks off work. In the background, he smokes and he's had some asthma as well. That's most of the history you get. So just if you take a moment now, just to think through these three questions. So firstly, what could be causing this man's symptoms? Now, this is an IBD talk, so you can put IBD down as number one and you're probably going to do pretty safely. But just think about what the other differential diagnoses might be for a young man presenting with subacute symptoms of this sort. And with that in mind, as you think about those differential diagnoses, just think about what other history might be important or useful, what other things do you want to know, and then what tests might you request? And I understand that we don't all work with a huge lab straight across the road that goes 24 hours a day. So what might you do where you are that could be helpful to try and understand what might be going on for this young man? So let's give you a little bit more time to think about those three questions and then we'll, um, we'll move through the, the, uh, the answers. Okay, so what could be causing this man's symptoms? So this is the differential I put down. So Crohn's disease, because obviously this is an IBD talk, so we've got to have an IBD case, at least one. So there's that. Celiac disease can present this way as well. Remember, it's about one in 70 of the population of uh, New Zealand probably have celiac disease. So there's a lot of undiagnosed celiac disease out there. Your gut infections, Giardia in particular, other gastrointestinal infections. IBS, one in six women, one in nine men have IBS, and it can manifest itself in different ways. Remember drugs that can affect the gut, so anti-inflammatories, they're the bane of my life. Uh, I know they're so good for musculoskeletal pain, but not only do they cause stomach ulcers, they can cause enteropathy of the small intestine of the colon, which is just like IBD. It could be a subacute presentation of appendicitis. Uh, he could have something more uncommon like cancer or diverticular disease, but that'd be the sort of things I'd be thinking about straight up. So if you're thinking about, well, how might I go about working out what's going on? What other history is important? Again, history is so important in much of what we do in medicine, certainly in gastroenterology, I think it's, a, it's the key thing. I'd much rather have a history than an examination any day of the week. So the pattern of symptoms. So for something like IBD, it just keeps on getting worse. So I know it's relapsing and remitting, but that's usually over weeks to months, but generally it just keeps on getting worse. Whereas IBS will go to sleep when the patient does and wake up again when they do in the morning. 
people will be awake with their symptoms of IBD overnight. Rectal bleeding, of course, is going to suggest a more organic pathology, weight loss the same. And then had there been any infectious contacts, any drug use, smoking. So as the patient is a smoker, we know this patient is, so that increases the risk of the patient getting Crohn's disease. But if it was someone who was a smoker and stopped smoking, that increases their risk of getting ulcerative colitis. So that association of symptoms with starting and stopping smoking is important. Of course, any family history of gut problems is important. So celiac disease, IBD, colorectal cancer, that's all important to know about. And of course, you can ask about these extra intestinal manifestations of inflammatory bowel disease. Those things I showed you earlier. One of the things I often ask about is mouth ulcers. So the mouth is part of the gut and often patients will have significant mouth ulceration that might just increase your thoughts about that being the case. So what basic tests might you request in this person presenting for the first time? So the things I've thrown out there are a blood count, some celiac serology, a CRP, um, fecal culture and parasites all the time, really important to check for. Calprotectin, um, it's the bane of my life. We're going to talk a bit about calprotectin tonight. It can be such a good test, but usually it's, it's, it's usually not, um, it's usually requested when it's not needed. Iron studies, B12 and folate to think about absorption and liver function for, for some background as well. So the reason I say calprotectin can be a problem is that remember anything inflammatory can put your calprotectin up. So if you had an infectious gastroenteritis, if you had anti-inflammatories, on board if you had inflammatory bowel disease, they will all put your calprotectin up. And at the end of the day, all you want to know is, is the calprotectin elevated or not? And can you, so is, is there inflammation there or not? And if the CRP is elevated, you don't need a calprotectin. So remember, I, I always say the calprotectin is a second line test for me. It's something you do if, this, if you don't have objective signs of inflammation elsewhere or no other cause for them, then a calprotectin can be helpful, but probably not first line. So Sean has a few tests. He's referred to a gastroenterologist and he has a colonoscopy. He's got a bit of inflammation in the colon, but a bit more inflammation in the terminal ileum. So that's what the ileum looks like. It's a bit red and pink. There's that mucus exudate over some ulcers. Um, and we send off a, um, a pathology slide. Uh, we send off a biopsy and there's a beautiful granuloma at the top, which we prepared earlier for you. Only about 20% of patients have granulomas. So. Crohn's disease diagnosis is made. So how do we assess IBD? Obviously the history and examination are important. How bad are the symptoms? The lab markers for inflammation. And then when we wanna make a diagnosis, these patients need a colonoscopy um, to make the diagnosis. We Sometimes they need a capsule to look at their small bowel. Cross-sectional imaging can be important, especially if someone presents sick at the start and you're worried about surgical problems. Um, and then gastrointestinal ultrasound is something that's evolving and I thought might be of interest to, um, to many of you who use ultrasound. So we can, of course, look at the, at the gut uh, as well as, um, as other organs in the abdomen. And in fact, usually most people doing ultrasound of the abdomen are trying to get away from the gut and the, and the gas patterns that it can interfere with. But we can actually get beautiful pictures of the mucosa, the submucosa, and we can look for thickening and stenosis and fistulae can all be picked up on gastrointestinal ultrasound. Here you can see Doppler flow as well, looking at, um, at how inflamed something may be. So again, there is, there is a, a learning curve to this. It's not something people can usually pick up straight away, but certainly ultrasound can give additional information in, in the right hands and can be used in that way. So you've now got this young man. Um, he's got Crohn's disease, mostly of the ileum. What treatments might you consider? So again, just take a moment or two to think through a new diagnosis of Crohn's disease. Uh, he's having a bit of a flare at the moment. What might you do to get him well?
So the things that I would think about in a, in, a, in a young man, he's got moderate to severe symptoms. He's a lawyer who can't work, so he's probably quite unwell. So to me, he probably needs a course of steroids. I'll talk a bit about steroids later on. Um, steroids are amazing. They are so good, but they are so bad as well. So they're a great drug to get you well. They're not a good drug to keep you well. So if you start steroids, you must have an exit strategy. This man's going to end up on an immunomodulator like a thiopurine as a thioprin 6MP, thioguanine, which we use increasingly now. But, it, but we'll probably start that in gastroenterology and also biologics subsequently, if he fails those, would be the sort of things that we'd be thinking about. So despite having some treatment, he carries on having symptoms. He turns up at an ED with a, abdominal pain. So this could be anywhere in the country. He's got a new diagnosis of Crohn's disease, turns up with abdominal pain. So what tests would you do for this young man? You know he's got this diagnosis, he's got pain, you take a history, uh, you need to find out you know, what's going on, what's happening um, with inflammation-wise, what could you do, what would you do? So to me, when you get an acute presentation of someone with inflammatory bowel disease, obviously you need to determine could they have a surgical problem, a perforation or an obstruction, and that will be, help, that will be determined clinically, but a very low threshold for a plain X-ray if you can do one. I know that everyone can't do one, but that can be helpful in that situation. And again, in a place where I can get lots of tests, I'll be looking at getting a blood count done. And again, with an ISTAT, you can get some of those things done. Some electrolytes can be helpful. Any markers of inflammation would be good. And even in a fecal spec, you're not going to get the answer straight away, but that, that could be helpful too. So the sorts of things we'd be thinking of doing early on. If we're worried at a big hospital, we'll run them through the scanner. If they go to the surgeons, they're going to get run through the scanner anyway. So, but you know, if, if, if the symptoms aren't that bad, but if there's any concern about a surgical problem, perforation or obstruction, then they need to be, they need to get to a base hospital. So just some sort of broad broad discussion about Crohn's disease treatment. Um, these are sort of the, the key features I think about how we might manage Crohn's disease. So for both Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, we have an anchor drug, which is the key drug that we use. And generally they are thiopurines for Crohn's disease. So the thiopurines are azathioprine, 6-mecaptopurine, and increasingly now we use thioguanine, which is sort of at the end of the pathway, and it, uh, it, can, be, it can be used very effectively, and we use that a lot. Methotrexate we use a bit as well, but we tend to not use it as much because we have a lot of women with Crohn's disease, uh, and of course, uh, methotrexate's a major issue um, around um, uh, effects on the fetus. The five ASA drugs like Pentase and Azacol really don't have much of a role in Crohn's disease. Maybe if you've got some colonic Crohn's, but they really don't do that much. So we tend not to use them. Um, in saying that, they are prescribed a lot, but there's not a lot of data to support them. The problem we have, of course, is that the immunomodulators have got toxicity. The five ASA drugs are pretty well tolerated. So we like to use things that are safe, but if they don't work, it doesn't really add up. So steroids, as I mentioned before, are absolutely um, very good at getting people well, but very bad in the medium to long term. So they're used to induce remission from moderate to severe disease. Orally, they're given as prednisone, but we can also use budesonide, which is um, we can give on a special authority, but we're always happy to, to provide those for, for others. So budesonide is, re is released in the distal ileum, and it's got a very high first-pass metabolism. So you get most of the benefit of the steroid with less side effects because it's, it's metabolized on the way through. If people are really sick, they need admission to hospital for IV steroids subsequently. What about biologics? So these used to be the new drugs. They're not anymore. They've been around for a long time now. So these are the drugs that we use when the, the thiopurines don't work or patients can't tolerate them. And the two that we have in New Zealand are both anti-TNF drugs. It's infliximab and adalimumab. 
infliximab, also known as Remicade, is given in, uh, in small hospitals, large hospitals, infusion centers all around the, all around the country. Adalimumab, you'll know, is Humira, but now it's been changed to Amgevita, which is a biosimilar. Uh, it's essentially the same drug. It's just uh, it's just much cheaper for Pharmac now to buy, which is good. Hopefully, they can give us some new drugs if we're if we're lucky. Um, and there are many other drugs we'd like to get, but they're the two that we have access to at the moment. But Amgevita, I'll talk about a little bit later. It's essentially the same drug, but you can use it in different ways now with the new special authorities. Exclusive enteral nutrition, so formula by itself is fantastic um, uh, for inducing remission, especially of small bowel Crohn's disease. Um, it's, it's fantastic and it has few side effects. Um, it works really well. It improves nutrition as well. The problem is that um, having patients drink formula and nothing else for a number of weeks can be quite challenging. So it can be something that can bridge someone over. Um, it can be used instead of steroids, but the patient's got to be highly motivated to do that. And then, of course, don't forget the low-hanging fruit. A lot of these patients are iron deficient, B12 deficient, folate deficient, and we can correct that stuff as well. So when I think about Crohn's treatment from a medical point of view, there are other things I tend to think about. There's a whole lot of other stuff we can do diet-wise. Obviously, surgeons play a big role. Psychological therapies are important as well for a lot of these patients, but these are the key medical things that I'd be thinking about. So back to our lawyer. Um, here's a colonoscopy, and that's his... Uh, ileocecal valve which is now very narrow so what we did for that is we dilated it so we did a colonoscopy and put a catheter down and stretched it up he felt very clever and smug after that um, and uh, and that was fine so this is a new diagnosis of Crohn's disease and just summarizing this case the history suggests the site of inflammation it was in the ileum and pain and diarrhea were the key features with some weight loss the simple test can frame the referral for colonoscopy so if there's abdominal symptoms with signs of inflammation, be that CRP, be that, uh, be that a mild anemia, be that raised platelets or low albumin, all those things are suggesting inflammation can help us get a colonoscopy. Crohn's disease will progress over time. So the reason we treat it isn't just for the symptoms, but if we don't treat it, you get scarring and that can lead to strictures and fistulae and abscesses and patients then will end up with surgery, which we want to try and avoid. And immunomodulators are the anchor drug. So I'm going to stop there and I'm happy to take some uh, questions at that point. So I've just got a couple of points before you start, Rich. So um, just to clarify, uh, your definition, I'm going to guess, of cross-sectional imaging is CT, isn't it? Yep. Yeah, it is CT, yeah. And I know that everyone doesn't have that, but I suppose that's one of the real key decision points if you're in a smaller place that, you know, when do you need to ship this patient out? Uh, and I suppose that's where the conversation with the with the surgeon at the base hospital comes in, uh, being able to, you know, understand whether the patient's peritonitic, whether the patient um, is unstable, where they could be going. Uh, I think having a good relationship with those surgeons is important. Interestingly, I asked in the uh, chat, uh, Richard, about uh, CRP's point of care testing, and people do have that, so that's good to know. Mm. Um, just around initially in your diagnosis you just called this Crohn's and you didn't include ulcerative colitis can you just clarify how you could narrow that down yeah so so the, the history gives you so much about where the problem is so for Crohn's disease typically abdominal pain if it's if, it, if it's small bowel Crohn's abdominal pain diarrhea weight loss so it's just the small bowel symptoms whereas if you have ulcerative colitis you have rectal symptoms you have urgency, you have diarrhea, you have incontinence, you have rectal bleeding. So that they're quite different in many ways as to how that could look. Now, of course, 
you know, Crohn's disease can also affect the colon, so you could have colonic uh, symptoms the same way, but you do get a real feel for, for, for the symptoms um, based on where, where the inflammation is. Good, thank you. Um, and then just to clarify, what would be your definition of failure of treatment with thiopurines? What would stimulate you to go to the next step? Yeah, so, so if, as a gastroenterologist, we want to make sure firstly, are they, on, are they having enough so that, and have they had it for long enough? So the thiopurines take at least three months to work. So if someone's prescribed as a thiopurine in the crop a month later, they might just need some more steroids to bridge them through to getting them working. So firstly, have they been on it for long enough? And secondly, have they had enough? And we can measure the metabolites of thiopurines. So 6-thioguanine, we can measure in the blood, and there is a therapeutic range for that. Um, so again, um, that's something that can be done to determine whether the patient's getting enough drug or not. I'm not going to go into all the pharmacokinetics and pharmacogenetics no. tonight, but certainly we can use those parameters to determine whether the patient's had a sufficient trial. Brilliant. I'll hand over to you, Rich. Oh, cheers, Lucinda. Hey, Richard. Um, at the beginning, you said, uh, I mean, this is the acute presentation of somebody with a new diagnosis of Crohn's disease. And I think this leads into the next case, but um, what sort of other um, differentials would you have had initially in, in this case um, beyond, of course, inflammatory bowel disease? And a specific question from um, uh, Jeremy up on Taupo was, is it unreasonable, you know, like, could this be diverticulous, diverticulitis in a 22-year-old, or would you have felt that was a bit young? It's pretty young. I mean, it's, I'll put it on the list, but it'll be low down. Um, uh, so I think it would be un un unusual. I mean, obviously... I always tell the patients when we, you know, we do colonoscopies and we find diverticular disease, I say, yeah, as we get older, we all get them. Uh, but the problem is that if I did scopes on everyone in the community, that'll have them and they don't have symptoms. So usually they're an incidental finding. But of course, you know, we do see occasionally diverticulitis in a young person. And in those middle ages from probably 40 onwards, you're starting to get a bit of overlap at that point. But it's probably going to be pretty rare in the same way that a cancer in this person will be rare without a family history. But, you know, um, based on their symptoms, they need a colonoscopy and you'll, you'll answer that question either way. Thank you. And then um, in your practice, do you find that using ultrasound is useful sort of in, in with acute management of IBD or uh, the images that you put up, were they more for interest or if you didn't have that same access to investigations as you do in the tertiary hospital? Yeah, so so we'll we'll use it instead of MRI. Usually, in the, usually in the more elective setting, we want to we want to stage someone's disease. But certainly, um, you know, if someone was confident with MR with, with ultrasound or wanted to learn more about that, then it is something that can be done. The issue will always be it's easy for us. You know, we've got three thousand patients in Christchurch to have someone who's a specialist ultrasound, uh, gastroenterologist who can do that that ultrasound work. Um, but it's about whether someone who's got the ultrasound skills can upskill in that way. Um, so it's it's probably done more in the subacute setting. Well, seeing that we're on to people of ultrasound skills, Matt Bourne down in Central Otago, he he loves ultrasound probes, and he had a specific question, which was um, why the stool culture in the second presentation for someone with Crohn's. Yeah, so people with with inflammatory bowel disease. Are uh, uh, more likely to get infections of people without inflammatory bowel disease. And the bane of my life is, is trying to understand why someone's presenting with symptoms who's got known, known IBD. Because they can be presenting with diarrhea because all of a sudden they have picked up Campylobacter. They could be presenting because they've 
We've got coexisting IBS. So 50% of Crohn's patients have IBS as well as Crohn's, a third of UC patients. So you get these dual pathologies going on. And of course, I don't want to throw a whole lot of steroids at someone who has got Campylobacter. So every time someone flares, they, they, they get fecal samples done. And if you start steroids and then it comes back, that's fine. You can stop them. But if you don't look, you won't, you won't know. So it's, it's such easy tests to do. I always have a low threshold. And also going back to the history, you know, typically um, the patient with, uh, with, um, with uh, um, Crohn's disease who, who all of a sudden has a sudden onset of diarrhea and abdominal pain, well, if it's a sudden onset, that sounds much more like an infection. So it's, again, it's not, it's not, it's not that thing you've got Crohn's, you've got diarrhea, you must be having a flare. It's listening to the, listening to the history and understanding actually you do have Crohn's disease, but gosh, that doesn't sound like your normal flare. That sounds like you've got gastro. So low threshold for thinking widely for other diagnoses. Uh, having previewed this last night with you, Richard, I know we're going to move on to that shortly. Um, so for David um, Short that was asking, I don't know where you are in the country at the moment, David, he, he, he wanted a little bit of support about having to identify, you know, other differential diagnoses but between himself and Jack Hayward, wherever he is in the country at the moment as well. Um, they were saying about, well, you know, if you were going to go and see a gastroenterologist in the meantime, you're going to start them on steroid. You know, what did you have in mind, Richard, and for how long? Yeah, so so we will talk about steroids coming up, but but generally, I mean, you saw you saw what the bell was like at the start of the of the presentation. You know, there's a lot of tissue inflammation there, um, so it needs a lot of steroids. So for for us, it's 40 milligrams a day for a week reducing by five milligrams per week. So I give, them, I give them eight tablets a day for a week, seven tablets a day for a week, six tablets a day, five milligram tablets, and just do that. And I say that I do that because I can't do the maths of adding 20s and fives together because I'd get that wrong. And if I'd get it wrong, I think the patients have got a chance of getting it wrong as well. So it's a lot of tablets, but if you explain it, it's a small denomination, it works fine. And, and that wean is a standard wean that we would use um, uh, over time. And of course, you want to see that people respond. Um, and if they don't respond, then they may need IV steroids. Thank you, Richard. Well, shall we move on with the cases? Sounds good. Okay, so here's Petra. She's an 18-year-old GAP student. Uh, this must be old slides because there wouldn't be any GAP students around at the moment. But <laughs> anyway, she's um, she's had two or three weeks of rectal bleeding with lots of diarrhea. She's had to get up at night to pass a bowel motion and she was incontinent once. So it wasn't much fun. She did go through Asia not long ago. Uh, this was about three years ago. And she's also had a knee injury recently um, and just pops a few diclofenac now and then. So similar questions. Before we go into those, I just want to throw this slide up because this is sort of, this is my approach to gastroenterology on one slide. Uh, for luminal gastroenterology, whenever, whenever you know, the red flag symptoms, I'm always asking about it, any weight loss, any onset of, of symptoms in old patients, because it could be cancer, any family history of cancer or IBD, any symptoms um, that are unremitting, you know, functional symptoms come and go, but severe symptoms don't, rectal bleeding needs an answer, and nocturnal symptoms, because nocturnal symptoms suggest there's something organic going on. Now my key red flags that I look for, and then with regards to examination for IBD, a fever or a mass, and look at the bottom, have they had an abscess before or fissure? And then for the lab testing, I've gone through those as well. So what could be causing this woman's symptoms? What other history would you think about? And what basic tests would you request? So again, I'll just give you a moment to think through those things before we, uh, before we go through them. So just have a think yourselves, you know, young woman, uh, different symptom 
uh, complex to the first patient. Um, what else would you want to know about and what other tests? Okay, so what could be causing this woman's symptoms? Pretty similar differential diagnosis, really. And, but this time you've got a history of, of, of a drug that could be doing the, the problem. She has had, um, had said gastro while traveling in Asia. So she could have a post-infectious IBS. So one in six people who get gastroenteritis, like Campylobacter or rotavirus, whatever, will get ongoing gut symptoms despite the fact the bug is gone. So post-infectious cerebral bowel syndrome, one in six people. Uh, and if you, and you, again, it's in the history. They were very sudden onset of symptoms. Um, that they can say I was well and then on that day I got sick and then it was like I had gastro and never got better and that's post-infectious IBS which which could potentially be the case although here you've got those alarm symptoms going on of nocturnal symptoms of incontinence in a young person um, and rectal bleeding as well. What other history would you ask about again more detail about the symptoms and then these other things as well. They're the same, same things as the last patient, uh, about weight loss, any infectious contacts, the drugs, again, the family history of any of those things we worry about, any extraintestinal manifestations, including uh, mouth ulcers. And what basic tests, again, similar to last time, blood count, CLEC tests, CRP, fecal culture, CalPro, if, if the CRP was negative, iron studies B12 folate. Okay, so the patient finds a gastroenterologist. And here you can see a different pattern of disease. They've got continuous disease starting at the anus, moving proximally. And they've got, um, crypt, um, hyper, they've got crypt hyperplasia and branching there with an uh, inflammatory infiltrate. So again, what diagnosis, what treatments, and what might you consider if things start going badly? So again, just have a moment or two to think about that. We've got the diagnosis, I think. I've given you that one. So what treatments are you going to use for someone with a new with, with UC? What, what are our key drugs here? And if she deteriorates, what are we going to do? Okay. So what di diagnosis would you make? It is consistent with ulcerative colitis. And again, I mentioned earlier, you can ask about the onset of symptoms. If someone just stops smoking and then they develop gut symptoms, then ulcerative colitis is high up on the differential. Um, patients who have got IBD can have their disease worsened by di diclofenac or any anti-inflammatory. So again, you need to be careful treating pain in IBD. It's a really challenging um, situation because paracetamol is fine, but it's not that effective. Codeine's constipating, tramadol also constipating, and anti-inflammatories can make their symptoms worse. So pain relief in IBD can be challenging. Uh, infection and IBD can coexist, and sometimes we do need to treat both together, but you've got to go looking for both. You need to do the fecal sample. So what treatments would you consider? So in ulcerative colitis, we love five ASA drugs. We love sulfasalazine, pentaza, azacol. They are our go-to drugs um, and they are the anchor drugs. And we know that they're really good to induce remission. We also know they're very good to maintain remission. And we also know that if they use long-term, they probably reduce the risk of colorectal cancer in people with ulcerative colitis. So there's lots of really good reasons to stay on those drugs if people can tolerate them and they usually can. Now, the other great thing about 5-ASA is that we can give them three different or four different ways. We can give them as tablets. We can give them as sachets if people have struggled to have the swallow the big tablets. We can give um, suppositories and we can give enemas. And for people with distal disease, rectal 5-ASA is a wonderful, wonderful thing. And if patients can get over the fact that they have to put something in their bottom, if you can tell them that, you know, we put this, this drug in, it's right beside where the inflammation is, it works really, really well. Mm -hmm. And what's more, if someone's sick with... Um, with um, 
and on, on oral 5-ASA, you can add rectal 5-ASA on top and it's additionally benefit. So you get double bang for your buck, if you like, with both deliveries. And if people are sick, they can get prednisone. And again, it's that standard wean of 40 milligrams a day for a week, weaning by five milligrams a week. Continuing with the 5-ASA, we add drugs on top sequentially to try and get them under control. So ulcerative clostridium 5-ASA is the anchor drug. It induces and maintains mild disease. It can be used orally, topically, or both. And the other thing is that patients often have been prescribed their 5-ASA two tablets four times a day or four tablets twice a day. Once a day dosing is just as effective, probably more effective because people remember it, than split dosing through the day. So if you've got patients who are on, on split dosing through the day, they can take eight pentaser or four pentaser, whatever they're on, all together at once. It works just as well. So they'll, they'll thank you for that. Steroids, again, induced remission, really important. Immunomodulators, only the thiopurines. Methotrexate doesn't work. Um, biologics, infliximab um, certainly uh, inf is effective. And now with, with um, Amgevita, you can use Amgevita for ulcerative colitis now. You didn't used to be able to use Humira, but now you can use Amgevita. And again, that micronutrient replacement. So steroids, as I mentioned, I, they're the devil we know. Um, starting, at, I always tell my registrars, if you start a course of steroids, you must tell me your exit plan. You cannot start steroids and just say, have some steroids and we'll see how things go. It, it, it's just not good enough. You've got to have a plan on the way out. And in the hospital for us, that's obviously often bridging patients to an immunomodulator or bridging them to a biologic. But I think in, in primary care, it's, it's actually telling the doctor, this patient, telling the gastroenterologist that this patient's having a course of steroids at the moment um, and can they catch up with them? Can they come give some advice? Can they come up with a plan? Because it's so easy just to slip into these recurrent courses of steroids. And before you know it, people have had a lot of steroids and a lot of potential side effects. And patients can really, um, you know, you can lose your therapeutic relationship if they, you know, a lot of these are young women and you're giving them a drug that makes them put on weight, gives them a round face with acne and makes them moody. So it's a pretty hard sell. So if you can tell people, look, it's going to make you better, but we've got another plan, it becomes really important. And what's more, all these drugs are immunosuppressing. And as we combine them, the risk of infection goes up as well. So it's important to think about that. So if she deteriorates, she might be in trouble. So one in six patients with ulcerative colitis will have a flare with acute severe colitis requiring admission to hospital. And those people have got a high risk of losing their bowel and they've got a, they've got a risk of dying as well. And then back in the 50s and 60s before steroids, this was a, often a fatal disease. So these patients are hospitalized and they have shared care. And we like to see them early. We like to know about them early because you know, we, can, we can get on and get their treatment up and going. So these are the true love and wits criteria. And I just want you to concentrate on the right side. And these are the things you should be looking for in someone with ulcerative colitis. These are the patients who need IV steroids, who need to be at a center where there's a surgeon. So if they get worse, they can have a colectomy or they can have a biologic or whatever they need. So that's um, greater than six bowel motions per day, significant bleeding, a fever, signs of toxicity, so a tachycardia, uh, a significant anemia, and also a CRP that's up. So if you look at those and you start to think about what that means, if you've got um, if acute severe ulcerative colitis um, with positive true love and wits criteria, your risk of a colectomy is significantly greater. Um, and the, these are all independent predictors of a colectomy. So identifying those patients, looking for those systemic markers of temperature, uh, pulse, uh, hemoglobin, CRP, rectal bleeding, 
um, and frequent bowel motions more than six times a day. The other things we need to be thinking about, and that, that, that's what I'm listening for when I take a, a phone call from a, a GP about someone with a colitis, because the other things that will help me make my decision. When we admit someone, here's my alphabetical approach to how I manage acute severe ulcerative colitis. Now, some of you may need to start doing this in the centres that you're in before you transfer them. So the first thing is admit the right people. So they're the true love and wits criteria I've just shown you. You don't need to know what they are, but who, who, who they're named after, but just understanding that people are sick. Then B, the blood, fluids, electrolytes, nutrition. So that's the that sort of rehydration or resuscitation, if you like. C is the colorectal surgeons and steroids, corticosteroids. So they get IV steroids, 100 milligrams of hydrocortisone four times a day. And we consult the surgeons on day one so they know they're in, so that they can review them every day with us and make sure they get better. People with um, severe IBD are at high risk of getting DBT PE. They die of PE. So they need um, uh, prophylaxis. And we need to stop the drugs like the emodiums and the codeines and the anti-inflammatories, which can make things worse. Some patients can have infection at the same time. They can have C. diff. So again, even though this person's clearly got UC, we always are looking for super infection because we can treat that. And then we assess them frequently and make a decision about a biologic on day three. So that's what we do. So if you send them to us, that's our approach. And you can be doing some of those things yourselves with low-dose um, uh, low liquid weight heparin for some of these people getting that on board. You, maybe you can give the first dose of steroids where you are before you transfer them, making sure they're well hydrated and doing those sorts of things. So this is what can happen when things go wrong. The, 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 one of the worst complications, but one of the coolest names in medicine, um, toxic megacolon, um, can occur where you get dilatation of the colon, you get thumb printing, you can see on that, on that transverse colon there. Um, so just for you see the case summary, remember the symptoms suggest the location of inflammation. Other causes of inf inflammation can be common, anti-inflammatories, infection. Think about markers of severity in 5-ASA, the anchor drugs, but steroids are fast and effective but you've got to have an exit strategy. So I'll stop there. Uh, oh, Brilliant. No, I know, so I've got one more slide. So this okay, is, actually, this is yeah. I don't know why I put it here, but this is this is when you've got a patient and there's a they're already on lots of treatment. What can I do when they're already when they're sick? So if someone's on five ASA, you can increase the dose. Um, if they've got UC and they're flaring, you can increase the dose up to four grams a day and add rectal therapy on top. So it's easy enough to do. You could start an immunomodulator, but that takes weeks or months to work. So it's not going to get you out of trouble immediately. And that decision is really probably a specialty, a specialist decision, I, I, I think. You can use Amjavita, which is the, the new Humira, if you like. Um, and what you can do now in the old days, if we wanted to use Humira weekly, so usually Humira is given one injection every two weeks, we could apply to the to the company for special for a compassionate supply for six, but now with Amjavita, you can just push someone up to weekly Amjavita straight away. So if I had someone who was um, who was uh, um, came to see me rurally who was flaring, um, you know, I'd be quite happy if they're already on Amjavita just to put them on weekly for a while while they're waiting to see the gastroenterologist. So that's something you do instead of steroids now, which we didn't really have that option in the future. The special authority is still valid; you just have to change them to weekly. So that's something you can do now, which is a, is a new thing. In Fliximab, we can increase the dose up to double dose or, or give it more often. Um, we can give exclusive ventral nutrition. Um, so you can give, put them on a formula um, feed, but they often need a bit of dietitian support for that. That can be done remotely, but, but, but it's just a matter of finding that person to do it. And then antibiotics, some things, sometimes things like metronidazole, particularly for perianal disease, can, can give us a small effect as well. 
So here's some sort of here are some tips and tricks for how you can potentially get better value without just giving steroids. You can increase treatments that people are already on or add some other things in. Right, I'll shut up now, Lucinda, or yours. Oh no, there's just so much good stuff. I just in fact that simplicity of Pentaza once a day, I think, could be life-changing. Um can I just quickly clarify? You mentioned about stopping smoking and getting a flare up of UC presenting. Is it that way versus starting smoking? That's the yeah, stopping. Yeah. yeah. So so for smoking, so the, the key is don't start. Because if you start Absolutely. smoking, you might get Crohn's. And then if you start smoking and stop, you might get UC. So, right. so, um, so if you have Crohn's, I tell my patients with Crohn's that I'm really excited that they're a smoker. Um, I know it might have given them the disease, but what it means now, if they stop smoking, it's probably as effective as any single drug I can prescribe them. So all of a sudden, because they're a smoker, I've got a whole new treatment I can give them, which is smoking cessation. I tell them I don't care about their risk of lung cancer, uh, heart disease, um, stroke, et cetera. All I care about is their Crohn's disease. And let's stop having diarrhea and, and stop smoking. So I really push that very hard. Um, that smoking cessation message but unfortunately for some patients with UC it can make their disease worse and some people will restart smoking um, with oh. UC um, to try and control their disease so we work hard obviously to get them off that if we can. I could say some very cheeky stuff about being a siloed um, gastroenterologist there couldn't I yeah, um, and then and um, just going back to the we had a wee discussion last night about drug cessation and the reason around stopping the loperamide and codeine, which seems yeah. very simple, but if you can just highlight yeah. that point again. Yeah, so if your bowel is, is so you saw that movie at the start, that person with ulcerative colitis, the, the, the mucosa is sloughed off. So that, 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 that bowel is thin and it's full of inflammation. If you all of a sudden stop the bowel moving in that situation with, with loperamide or codeine, that person will perforate. They'll have a, a, a spontaneous perforation and that's a disaster. That's potentially fatal. So um, while it's sort of, it's so easy for patients, oh, I'm having diarrhea, I'll just pop some loperamide. You know, that's sort of okay, but I'm always a bit twitchy about it, especially if there's signs of inflammation going on or they've got significant colonic inflammation, it's a big deal. So you can use those drugs, but you've got to be very, very careful. And certainly opiates, extremely careful of as well. Great. Uh, now, just around CRPs, ESRs, and calprotectins, um, I mean, we tend to not, I say that ESRs and the true love and wit, I suspect that's quite historical and you can now just use the CRP. Yeah. Um, how often would you get a negative CRP and a positive calprotectin? Yeah, good question. So, that, so that's when the calprotectin is really helpful. Um, so calprotectin is super sensitive. So it will go up really easily. And we've, there are a lot of people out there with positive calprotectins that don't have IBD. So it's a, it's a, bit, it's, it's a, it's a bit like your, um, your D-dimer. It's a great rule out test. So if someone's presenting with diarrhea for the first time, their CRP is normal, you're still worried about IBD, you do a Calpro. If it's less than 50, they're incredibly unlikely to have Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, incredibly unlikely. So it's really good as a rule out test. If it's elevated, it just means they need to have the next test done. Uh, which may be a colonoscopy or maybe some other things. So it isn't it isn't perfect, and certainly, um, and so, but it can be very helpful in that in that situation. The other situation it can be helpful in is, is if someone you know has got IBD and they're having symptoms all the time, and you're not sure do they are they having their coexisting IBS, and is this and you can't tell from the history. You don't want to colonoscope them every time they come in or they won't come back to see you anymore. So a biomarker in that situation, um, if a CRP isn't helpful and the person does throw a calprotectin, then that can be a helpful marker in that situation as well to try and understand is there any, any much in the way of residual inflammation going on. 
I mean, you say over 50, but I had a guy with uh, salmonella gastroenteritis and he had a Calpro of 800. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. You know, I mean, you yeah. know, that's still significantly elevated. Yeah. So, um, remember, so, rem yeah. so remember for those patients, um, once it's up, it just means there's inflammation present. It could be for anything, um, but but uh, but certainly um, it, he won't hit, you know, it, if it's low, it's unlo unlikely to be a problem. Is there any benefit in repeating it once the symptoms settle or repeating it at any point? I don't know when you might repeat it. But, so, you know. so, if, so if it's, in, if it's, in, if it's someone presenting for the first time, if they get better by themselves and everything goes back to normal, I'd leave it. But if, yep. if it's someone um, with IBD, and, and you, know, you might say, well, I'm starting on in this course of treatment. One of the markers I'm going to look for to see whether it's effective is not just your symptoms, but actually your calprotectin. And then there are some other patients I have who don't have many symptoms at all, but they have quite bad inflammation. And I want to stop them progressing to more severe disease. So for those people, I might use calprotectin as a target uh, for treatment, but that's sort of in a small proportion of people. And your target is under 50, is it? Uh, so if you've got IBD, I'll probably be okay with under 150, 200, because right. there's always going to be some inflammation present. So we have a slightly different normal for IBD, if that makes sense. Yeah, great. Uh, just around the post-infectious IBS, what duration mm. of that could you expect that to continue for? I can go on. I mean, it can be a long-term IBS problem, but often it will fade with time. Um, but the patients, you know, they just give such a beautiful history. You know, they must just, they just say, you know, oh, it was really good. Then one day I just got severe diarrhea and it's never really gone away. And, and right. it's just a very, it's a classic history. And, um, and you know, that's why, if you take that history, just about that onset of action, of onset of um, onset of symptoms, it can be really helpful in that regard. And I just want to uh, clarify for our listeners in terms of the exclusive enteral nutrition, mm. that is simply Fortisip. Yep, Fortisip, Fortisip or Ensure. Um, so yep. that's have to. So if you have all of your calories that way, it is a complete diet. It has everything in it that you need, except for probably um, the taste and texture and all the other things you enjoy about food. But as far as a nutritional uh, uh, thing it's got everything that you need in it so uh, they need they need the right calories which again it's going to be difficult to potentially do, work that out uh, but some patients will have done it before potentially and will be happy to do it again so it's again you, you can you could offer that to patients um, instead of steroids uh, it's something that can be helpful great rich anything from you no i think you covered everything yeah um we've got loads of cases shall we keep going yeah Go, okay, Richard. Okay. All right. So here's John. He's a 53-year-old carpenter. He was diagnosed with UC um, age 30. He's never really engaged very well. He's always just had diarrhea and not really come to clinic much. Um, you know, you don't see much of him. He had some abnormal liver function tests recently, and he presents with rectal bleeding, which is just a little bit worse than what he has previously had. So again, established UC, not great control. Why, what might be going on? Why might he have abnormal liver function tests and how might you investigate this further? So again, I'll, I'll just give you a moment or two to think through why he might be presenting now, what else might be going on. Just while they're quickly thinking, Richard, um, there was a question around, you mentioned flagell, but someone was asking around IVABs in hospital. Would you have something... So, so if, if anyone has, if a patient's got per, perforating disease, if they've got, if they've got an abscess, yes, but we wouldn't typically use it as a treatment for luminal disease uh, as an inpatient. By that time, they'd be on IV steroids um, and they'd be having infliximab, and we'd be going hard that way. But if there's any sign of uh, of a of um, 
of a of a complication with an abscess or something inside then absolutely we're very worried in that situation about using steroids we might touch on that a bit later okay Thanks. so what's what's wrong with this guy well he could have cancer because he's had pancolitis for more than 15 for more than eight years so therefore his risk of cancer goes up above that of the normal population he could be having a flare or he could be having diverticular disease or, or any of the other reasons that are going on as well. But obviously now you've got an older person, he's got a precancerous disposition uh, and he's got abnormal liver function tests, which start to make us think about other things too. So what could his abnormal liver function tests be due to? Well, he could have metastatic colorectal cancer. He could have primary sclerosing cholangitis, which remember is that very um, pre-malignant condition that increases the risk, not just of cholangiocarcinoma, but also colorectal cancer. And if he was on a thiopurine, which he's not, he could have a thiopurine side effect as well. Or he could be a drinker, or he could have um, fatty liver, who knows. So how would you investigate further? He needs a scope. I mean, he's, he's had chronic disease. He needs to be restaged. He needs to have surveillance for what's going on. And he needs a non-invasive liver screen and uh, history around that. So he's got a cancer. And again, just around this um, these patients are at risk of colorectal cancer. So a really important part of their health maintenance is making sure that they're in, in a surveillance program. It's only for colonic inflammation that we're interested in. Small bowel inflammation does increase your risk of small bowel cancer, but the risk of small bowel cancer is so rare anyway, we don't, we don't, um, we don't screen for it. So the risk of colorectal cancer increases after eight years if you have pancolitis. If you have left-sided colitis after 15 years, if you've got proctitis only, there's no increased risk. So someone with a bit of proctitis, they don't need to have surveillance. If you have IBD and you've got primary sclerosis and cholangitis, then you have an increased risk as soon as the PSC is diagnosed. And those patients will have yearly colonoscopies. Their, their risk of colorectal cancer is so high. Yearly colonoscopies if you have PSC. Otherwise, if it's, um, if it's uh, pancolitis, it'll be between five and one or two years, depending on other factors, which might include family history and, and other things as well. If you have poor disease control, your risk of cancer goes up. So that's another reason to motivate patients to be on maintenance therapy, to avoid that risk. And surveillance for dysplasia is, is not, it's not, it's not a straightforward colonoscopy and often needs a, someone who's got an interest in that to be able to do it well. They get dysplasia in flat mucosa, so it's not like a polyp, so it can be quite hard to see. Oh, that's the end of that case. So we can stop and take any questions if you like. Uh, there was just one question from Jack Hayward who was wondering, um, you know, how easy is to access formula um, for the treatment of people with um, ulcerative colitis or, well, ulcerative colitis or inflammatory, oh, well, Crohn's disease? Yeah, so so um, so if you have if you have inflammatory bowel disease, you you instantly get a special authority um, lifetime special authority. So if it's one, if you go to the um, the website, it's one of the ones where there's just a list. If you have any of these, you can get it for life. So so that'll mean you can get the powder for free. So the tins of ensure you can get for free. Now, if you want to get the tetra packs, there's a partial charge with those. Um, so when you send the prescription into the pharmacy, they'll deliver it, but they take the patient's visa number first and bill them for it. So it depends a bit on what type patients like and what they can afford. Obviously the Tetra packs are really convenient, but the um, the uh, the um, tins of, of Insure are, are, are free. Here's for that, Richard. And just while we've got an opportunity to ask another question, do you, do you think there's uh, much of a role in proctoscopy for um, the diagnosis of inflammatory bowel disease? And uh, do you think this some this would be something that would be useful for rural hospitals to have and for 
journalists to get training in? Yeah, I mean, I, I think and GPs. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of one of those things that that if if you can do it, it's it's fantastic. Um, so if someone is there with you, you get an answer very quickly. You know, that's better than a CRP. If you can see and flame mucosa, it's going to be really helpful. <laughs> so, 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 so if you can do that, that's great. But the question then is, well, how often are you going to need to do it? But I think you know, being able to examine, um, examine the anus and rectum and even distal sigmoid effectively is a really useful skill to have. No matter, you know, well, perhaps not everywhere in medicine, but in many places in medicine, it can be a really useful thing. You know, to look for other diseases. You know, remember these patients get fissures, they get perianal abscesses. Um, you know, there's a lot of patients who come in who have um, rectal cancer. Uh, other um, diseases can also be identified that way. So if people are able to, yes. Um, how easy is it to get trained in it? I don't know. I mean, I don't I don't do rigid sigmoidoscopy anymore because I, I can use a flexible one and that's easy. But um, And that's what I'll tend to do. But I think if you're in a situation where you don't have access to that, then clearly it's a, it's a useful thing. Or even right. if it's someone, even if it's one person at your practice who could do it, the patient could come back potentially, and that would be another way of uh, of of uh, reducing the or in, increasing the the volumes for, for fewer people. And it is likely something that uh, you know the more you do of it, you'll get more skilled at, and so that is a good suggestion. Yeah. Okay. Brilliant. Fourth case, Richard. Okay, fourth case. All right. So this is Bianca. She's a 35-year-old administrator. She got Crohn's disease um, 14 years ago. It was ileal Crohn's disease. She was hospitalized early, had some steroids, had some mesothyprine, didn't work. So she uh, got onto um, adalimumab. It was Humira back then. That didn't work. So she had a bowel resection. So an ileocolic resection. They took, um, they took 40 centimeters of her terminal ileum and a bit of cecum, um, a primary anastomosis. And then she'd been doing pretty well after that on azathioprine and adalimumab combo therapy. That's a pretty standard sort of a, a story. Interestingly, after her resection though, she had a lot of diarrhea um, and um, she came back to clinic and said, oh, it's just like it's, just like it's um, I've got my Crohn's back again. Um, and I suppose the question is, this sort of post-operative diarrhea isn't uncommon. And I just wanted just to think about for a minute, why might, why might she have post-operative diarrhea? So, terminal eyelid resection, the, the big one is bile acid malabsorption. So typically these people will have um, abdominal pain, abdominal pain, weight loss, getting worse, getting worse, have an operation, then watery diarrhea, watery diarrhea, watery diarrhea. So they've actually got a very different symptoms to what they're presented with initially. Remember after an operation, it also takes a while for the gut to adapt. So often we'll just wait and see what happens. But if we're wondering about bile acid malabsorption, a trial of cholestid, which isn't much fun to take, but is, it can be, it just will switch it off just like that. So if you have a patient come and see you who's had an ileal resection, you can change their lives by giving them cholestid. It's a, it's a fantastic treatment. They can't always tolerate it though. They might have active disease or they could have any of those other things going on and I won't touch those, but just think about, about um, bile acid malabsorption and people who have had an ileal resection. It's a, something you can fix very easily. So she now presents at 9 p.m. on a Friday. Um, she said abdominal pain for 10 days. She's increased bowel motions up to five times a day. She's not eating much. What else do you want to know? What other history is important? So just a few seconds to think through what other things you want to know for Bianca. So again, you want to know more about the history of presenting complaint. How quickly did this come on? Was it sudden? Does it gradual? What other things are going on in the life? What other, um, what other um, history examination? You know, is she under stress? Is, there, is it more a functional problem? What else could be going on there? 
So what can you get in rural medicine at 9 p.m.? And I suppose that's a question that you guys will know much better than I, but obviously um, objective information, um, you can take a very good history, you can, you can examine someone, but getting objective information will be limited by what you have in the institution that you work in. Um, and you know, if you can get any simple markers of inflammation, I think they're fantastic because it'll really make you feel more comfortable about prescribing something um, that's going to treat inflammation. Um, I think if you have in any way concerned about the, the surgical stuff, obstruction or perforation, if you can get a plain x-ray, great. If you can't, you need to talk to a surgeon and say, you know, this is what's going on. And you need to use, if you're worried about either of those things, you need to be able to, to, to say whether you're worried about them or not to that person so they can decide whether to take them or not. You can get point of care fecal calprotectin, which sounds like fun, but I think you'd, you'd, they'd probably go stale on the bench um, given that you're not going to see this that often. But I think, um, again, the other sort of key things for me would be any, any objective markers of inflammation. If you had someone who had, um, if you could do a flex, if you do a, sorry, a rigid sigmoidoscopy, that could potentially help as well. So there are important considerations. Remember, non-IBD symptoms. So, so um, could this be due to, um, to other things? Um, could it be due to, to uh, IBS or infection? The surgical complications, as I've mentioned, and then IBS symptoms. So if this is a flare of disease, what could you do for this woman? She's already on azathioprine and she's on adalimumab as well. So we could go back to the devil we know. We could give her a course of steroids, a standard 40 milligrams a day tapering down over, over eight weeks. We would need to admit her if we wanted to give her IV steroids. If she was sick enough, then we might go down that pathway. The only concern we would have is we want to make sure she doesn't have an abscess. So if she had Crohn's and she had a, a little abscess from a bit of perforating Crohn's disease and giving someone steroids in that situation would be not so good. So again, in that situation, if they have a fever, they're tender, you know, you might want to give them steroids, but maybe you just want to give them antibiotics. So that's, and in that situation, you're probably liaising with a surgeon. And I'd be saying, look, you know, I can't do all the tests that you can do. Um, I'm worried that they, uh, you know, they're clearly having a flare, I think, but I'm worried they could have, they could have a small abscess or a perforation. I've given, the, I've given them the antibiotics. Do you want me to start hydrocortisone or not? And in that situation, they're probably coming to, they, they probably need to, to, go, to go to the surgeon if they're sick enough. But that use of steroids with, um, you know, sometimes you have to do it very carefully if you're worried about infection at the same time. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, you can now go to weekly Amgevita which is fantastic. So it's good timing this talk. It only happened a few months ago um, that you can now do that. So they're referred to base hospital. Yes, they've had a flare. They're, they're discharged on adalimumab, azathioprine, and prednisone. They present again to you three Fridays later. You're lucky you get all the Friday nights on call um, with cough and shortness of breath. So what might be going on now? So Bianca, Crohn's disease, adalimumab, azathioprine, prednisone, recent flare, now cough and short of breath, differential diagnosis. So remember, she could have a clot. Uh, so always going to have a low threshold for thinking about a clot. Um, but of course, she's triple immunosuppressed. She's got Humira, or she's got adalimumab on board, uh, azathioprine and high dose steroids. And these patients are at high risk of PCP or PJP. So again, thinking about what else could be going on. This is where we need generalists who can think more broadly around other causes for things that are happening. Could just be a conventional pneumonia, could be another opportunistic infection. But again, you need to be looking at this list of medications going, oh my goodness, you, know, you don't have much, much immune function left. You know, we need to be thinking broadly about what might, what might be going on. And often in that situation, we'll give cotrimoxazole prophylaxis. We would here anyway, not, not, not always, but, but often we would. 
So summary of this case, important to consider IBD and non-IBD causes for presentations in patients with IBD. So it could be um, IBS, it could be infection, it could be those other things. Be careful using steroids if you think they could have intra-abdominal sepsis. So if they're tender, you're really worried that they could have an abscess, there's a lump there. You know, just be careful about that. You've got to exclude those surgical problems. And just remember the combination of immunosuppression is also really common. Uh, is, 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 is common and, the, and there are complications from that. So just some take-home messages for the whole talk. I can do that, then we can do questions forever, or perhaps not forever, for a while. Um, a thorough history, again, it is, I think it is the key. Um, remember, the surgical complications is where you're going to get burnt in rural practice. Um, so it's the perforations, it's the abscesses, it's the obstructions. So having a really low threshold to get on the phone to get those people out to get help. It's not uncommon to have two, and two diagnoses at the same time. So they could have IBD and IBS, IBD and infection, IBD and a drug. So again, thinking about that and understanding what you might do if you're managing two problems, not just one. You can change existing therapies, not just throw steroids at people. So you can up the 5-ASA, you can um, go to weekly MGVT, you can add exclusive nutrition. There are a range of things you can do. And patients also know their disease really well. So often they'll come and they'll go, oh, I'm having this, these symptoms, but it's not like my normal flare. Or they might just come in and say, you know, this is exactly the same as I had last time. And obviously patients knowing too much is a good and a bad thing, but often they will know their disease very well. And, uh, and um, listening to them is important, but also making sure they understand that you have to think about other, other diagnoses as well. So I can finish up there and happy to take questions and, and uh, Carry on. So I, you know, Richard, in terms of uh, the generalist team that you're talking to, I think you've um, hit the nail on the head in terms of just enhancing our knowledge and empowering us to be generalists and think of the potential complications that can occur for our team and our patients that present. You know, there's some things now that when I see my next IBD patient, I'll be like, oh, I must think about that and that and that. So thank you very, very much. Uh, I'll hand over to you, Rich. Have you got some questions there? I know you've got some. Yes, yeah, certainly. I've um, got a few questions here um, from David and Susanna. And they're just wondering, is there any rule in any diets for the control of acute flares of IBD or their ongoing management? Yeah, so there are. So the one with the most evidence is exclusive enteral nutrition. So that's we'll get that off the table first. Um, after that, there is the Crohn's disease exclusion diet, which is a quite a specialist diet that's developed in Israel. Um, there are some dietitians around New Zealand who can deliver that. Um, so, um, but you probably you probably would need to. The problem with a lot of these diets is they they get very you know exclusion diets and people don't get off them, and and they can end up in, in trouble long term. But if you can get dietetic help, the Crohn's disease exclusion diet. We've done research, lots of research on low FODMAP diet and Crohn's disease, but it's not for inflammation. It's more for people who've got Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis and IBS. It helps their IBS, but it doesn't help their Crohn's disease. So absolutely. The other, the other ones, of course, are if people have got a stricture or, or obstructive type symptoms, and clearly you want low fiber diet, so they get to eat chips and no veggies and stuff, so they're lucky. Um, and then you've got um, also for people, people who have got ulcerative colitis, you've got this conundrum whereby they probably want to go on a low fiber diet, so they have less bowel motions, but actually fiber can be good for their bowel as well. So it's about, again, a health, healthy balanced diet is where I start. But there are a number of those different options. I tend to refer to a dietitian 
Uh, I'm lucky I can do that. And of course, I've got an IBD specific dietitian who's fantastic, um, who does actually consult privately all around the country by Zoom. But so there are options for those people sometimes. But but um, but um, but most but most dietitians are very collaborative dietitians, and if they don't know, they'll often ask other dietitians about what to do. So if there are people locally where you are, or you know, getting them on board, but the key is making sure people don't exclude too much. What about more fashionable options such as whole food diets or keto? Yeah, yeah. So um, so there's not a lot, there's not not a lot of data. Um, so you know, it might work, but there's not a lot of data. Um. It's good for losing weight. I've just lost twelve kg doing keto and low calorie. It's been great, but um, but uh, but it's um, it's it's there's no data that's effective for IBD. Cool. And just just out of interest, have you uh, had to adapt um, your management of IDP or uh, inflammatory bowel disease patients in this era of COVID? Um, yeah, so initially we were terrified um, that we had all these patients who were heavily immunosuppressed. Um, I was lucky enough to be part of a big consortium worldwide where we had over 7,000 patients um, with IBD and COVID reported in, including all their medications and their outcomes. And what we found was that basically steroids are bad. Um, for If you're on steroids, it's a risk factor. If you're old, it's a risk factor. If you've got IBD, it probably increases your risk slightly, but the drugs like the biologics and, and the other drugs didn't really increase the risk very much. At the moment, all the guidelines worldwide say if you get COVID and you're on um, biologics and uh, immunosuppressants, you should stop them for two weeks. I think it's rubbish because that was in a pre, pre-immunized non-Omicron environment. We now have a mostly immunized Omicron environment, not Delta. So now patients are just carrying on with most of their drugs. Um, so, so it doesn't doesn't tend to play such a role anymore. Um, so, and it doesn't make sense because you know the immunomodulators and biologics. If you stop them, they're still in your blood system for a good week or so, and that's when you've got COVID. So, you're probably just more likely to have a flare of your IBD. So, I, I, I tend to, even though the guidelines don't say that, I, I tend to, and most of my colleagues now would continue treatment. Yeah, and I think a good observation has been made by somebody around the country, Joanne, who sort of said. Um, or one of the take-home messages I've taken from this talk is, you know, like the importance of getting an early fecal sample in these patients with IBD to make sure there isn't something else going on. But a, a few people around the country, they have to wait for um, seven days of diarrhea before the lab will process their sample. But I think the suggestion here is you maybe phone up the, uh, the lab and explain why you, you the benefit of doing it. Yeah, I mean... It, oh. Yeah, or if, if, if you're busy, as you guys will be, just lie on the form, so you shouldn't say that. But just, just so, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, they've got their rules for their reasons, but if these patients have got IBD, then this is a different population. You know, this is someone who has got a high risk of having an infection, and actually a negative or a positive uh, result will make a huge difference to what you do. It will be the difference between increasing immunosuppression and giving some antibiotics or doing nothing. So that's an enormous difference that the lab's making, and they should feel very proud and happy to be part of that part of that story i think so i just i mean they, they need it done and i just do what i had to do to get it um white lies white lies, white lies. i feel i feel empowered to do that after your you know speaking to you tonight so i i have no qualms in doing that sometimes twisting the truth for the benefit of patients so yeah it's brilliant it's brilliant um okay that's all richard on there rich that that was it from the questions Anyone else got any burning questions? Why you've got an IBD specialist on the on the on the forum? 
Jeremy up in Taupo would like to know, uh, after initial um, acute flare, what, what sort of length of time would you consider doing a colonoscopy? Yeah, so if, once you've got the, the index, once you've got the, the, the diagnosis made, then um, really there's no, you, you've got to have a reason to do it. You know, we, we've got enough trouble with, um, with uh, you know, not enough colonoscopy resource in the country, but even with that, you've got to decide, well, why are you doing it? So for me, if I started initial, if I'd, if I'd, if I'd, oh, if I'd first presentation, not once Yeah, I think that's so, before they've, yeah. Okay, yeah. So, 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 so that, that's just, there's this real, there's this real difficult situation where someone presents with acute, severe diarrhea, bloody diarrhea, and you're thinking, is this an infection or is it IBD? In that situation, I suppose you're going to look at CRP. You're going to look at how bad their symptoms are, and they may need it. They may need admission straight up and, and diagnosis straight up. So I had a guy two weeks ago. I scoped, um, and he had bloody diarrhea for two weeks. Um, he got a colonoscopy, um, and but the question is, of course, is it just a, a, a you know we, we say often, oh, you need six weeks of symptoms before you get a colonoscopy. If they're bad enough, they need a colonoscopy and need admission to hospital. It needs to happen very quickly. So that's the person I think you get on the phone to and you say, look, I know this person hasn't had six weeks of diarrhea, but they're having 10 bowel motions a day. There's blood. They've got a raised CRP. I'm really worried this person's got acute severe colitis. Say that. I'm really worried this person's got acute severe Crohn's. Um, then it's very, they, need, they, they just get a scope and they, they need one. So I think that you need to probably advocate harder for them because, you know, there's a lot of people out there who don't need a scope who've got diarrhea. But if you say those words and if you're worried this person's toxic and unwell, then I think that's where you, that's where you, where you do it. So if they've got less, less severe symptoms and that can wait, then they can be done in a few weeks' time and that's okay. But if they're at that more severe end, that, that's the tough one. It's hard for those patients too. The first time they ever get, Get, get IBD, they get it really badly, and some of them lose their colon. My guy lost his colon with his first presentation. That happens. Mm. Uh, it's not much fun. Uh, that highlights the key around the importance of the information you actually put in the referrals, doesn't it? You yeah. know, some people just cut and paste what they've written in their clinical notes, and you know, say from a GP perspective, but actually putting up the key points in your in your referral is key. Um, well, you I think, you think if, you, if you say things like, yeah, I'm worried about acute severe colitis, if you say, I'm, you know, I'm worried about this person's unwell and, I, and if they have to wait too long, I'm worried things are going to get, you know, just, just, just say it. Yeah. Um, uh, and just in terms of the IBD specialist dietitian, what would her name? I think she's uh, a he, she, was she? Uh, Catherine Wall, her name is. W-A-L-L. Yeah, so she's, um, she did a PhD as well as a dietitian. She did a postdoc in London. And she's just, she's great. She's um, very, very good at that stuff. And she consults all around the country uh, by Zoom, um, as well as working in research with us still. So, Brilliant. Okay. Well, I think on that note, we will uh, say thank you very much, Richard and Rich, for um, helping us this evening. It's been very, very informative. I have thoroughly enjoyed our evening this evening, and I'm sure everyone else has. So as I say, if you uh, would like to claim CME points and you'd like me to help you do it, just complete the... Uh, feedback form and put your medical council number at the end of that don't put it in the chat uh, and I can just do that this evening okay so very much thank you very much Richard on behalf of all of us thanks Kakite.